You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 391 of this podcast. Today is... Sunday, May 15th, 2022, and I've got a special treat for you in the way of a review for Christianity and Wokeness by Owen Strachan. Christianity and Wokeness, How the Social Justice Movement is Hijacking the Gospel and the Way to Stop It. Finished that one up yesterday, and I'm hoping to listen to Dr. Eric Mason's Woke Church next this afternoon. I've got some missing data reports that I need to run through. While I'm running those, what better way to pass the time? What better way to engage my mind more fully than in listening to the other side of the debate? Christianity and wokeness is a good representative of the case against mixing what is known as wokeness in with Christianity. The two are not compatible. They will not blend. You will get something other than Christianity. Call it Christianity if you will, but you will get something other than the gospel. You will get a false gospel. You'll get a false Christianity. It is that important. And he makes a very good case for such here. But before we get into Christianity and Wokeness by Owen Strachan talking about it, I had a random stray thought this morning, which I figured you might be interested in coming along with me to unpack and hear about. I started wondering to myself, just for anyhow, why is denim the fashion? It hasn't always been so, but how did it come to be the fashion? Why is it that we wear blue jeans, so many of us? Why do we wear jeans in the first place? And also, why do we wear blue jeans? Why blue? It seems to me as though a lot of old-timey photographs from a century or more ago show people wearing black very often. Women wore dresses. The men wore black suit jackets, black suit pants, button-down shirts. Now we only wear those things on formal occasions, for the most part, most of us. And a great many of us prefer to wear blue jeans. But two questions. One, why jeans? Why denim? First question. Second question, why blue? You can get jeans in any color. It's just a dye. It's not like that's the natural color of the fibers and the fabric and all that, the material. It's not naturally blue. We have to make it blue, but we can make it any color we want. Well, I found this interesting article at medium.com. Renoon. It's a four-minute read from 2020. Just for anyhow, I'll give you the high points here. First of all, this says that in 1873, denim, blue jeans, indigo-dyed denim with pockets, were invented by Jacob Davis, a tailor 
at Levi Strauss, owner of a wholesale fabric house in San Francisco. So that is to say, Levi's, that's the original. Between 1920 and 1930, blue jeans were perfect for cowboys and miners alike, so it became a popular Western wear in the United States worn by male workers who needed sturdy clothing that could withstand heavy wear and tear. Nobody wore jeans in the street. Otherwise, they were also very uncomfortable and stiff, according to this. In the 1950s, our dearest jeans started to become so successful to make their entrance in movies says make its entrance in movies, but that's not correct. There's a typo there. One of the most famous actors of that period, James Dean, popularized blue jeans in the movie Rebel Without a Cause in 1955. He wore a simple t-shirt, a leather jacket, and jeans, a bang uniform that guys began copying immediately. Not only did James Dean give the first hint, this says, but also pop culture bad boys, such as Marlon Brando, promoted jeans in their films. For example, The Wild One, 1953, wearing denim as they shook up the squares. This led to blue jeans being banned in some public schools in America for being too provocative. Can you imagine that? In the hippie era of the 1960s, made of free love and youth, the casual blue jean was embraced. It was seen as a form of creative expression and personalized jeans were considered very groovy. While in the early 1970s, feminists such as Gloria Steinem, leader and spokeswoman for the American feminist movement and women's lib organizers, chose blue jeans as a way to demonstrate gender equity. So how about that? In the 1960s, when my mother was born, when my dad became a teenager, spent his teenage years, women wearing blue jeans was intentionally strategically embraced by feminists to prove that men and women are pretty much the same. Late 1970s, high fashion. By the late 1970s and early 1980s, high fashion started to be interested in denim too. Calvin Klein was the first designer in 1976 who showed blue jeans on the runway just four years later, a 15 years old Brooke Shields starred in one of the most famous and provocative Calvin Klein commercials saying, nothing comes between me and my Calvins, bringing denim to the forefront of every fashion designer's mind. So this is to say that blue jeans in large part became popularized because first cowboys and miners out west wore them and then subsequently the bad boys of the big screen in the 1950s and 1960s wore blue jeans. Then they became the fashion, and now we, for the most part, I'll bet, think nothing of it. Here is an also interesting piece on blue jeans from Reader's Digest, titled, This is the Real Reason Blue is the Most Common Denim Color. Author Marissa La Liberté, I don't think that's her real name, could be wrong, maybe it's a pen name. Marissa writes, Blue might not seem like the most neutral color, yet they're the color of what are likely your most versatile pants, jeans. Where did the color come from? Calling your pants blue jeans almost seems redundant because practically all denim is blue. While jeans are probably the most versatile pants in your wardrobe, blue actually isn't a particularly neutral color. Ever wonder why it's the go-to hue? The answer to that question 
requires going back to when the first genes were created. Levi Strauss might be known for inventing genes. He just patented the style with rivets to make them sturdier. He wasn't the first to create the fabric, according to Levi Strauss and co. Denim was already a traditional fabric for laborers. So he was just adding a new twist on the trend of the day. In fact, he used the same design for brown cotton pants called duck trousers, which eventually fell out of fashion and made way for jeans. Those tiny front jean pockets, however, are still on modern designs today, and this is why they exist. Blue, there's a link to another article, which I'm not going to click into, but blue was the chosen color for denim because of the chemical properties of blue dye. Most dyes will permeate fabric in hot temperatures, making the color stick. The natural indigo dye used in the first jeans, on the other hand, would stick only to the outside of the threads, according to Slate. When the indigo dye denim is washed, tiny amounts of that dye get washed away, and the thread comes with them. The more denim was washed, the softer it would get, and eventually achieving that worn-out, made-just-for-me feeling you probably get with your favorite jeans. When it's finally time to part with your overused pair, you can recycle or upcycle them with these 10 other items. Another link to an article I'm not going to click through. That softness made jeans the trousers of choice for laborers. As demand for jeans went up and duck trousers went down, blue jeans took over and locked their place in history as the classic American fashion. So, there you go. Now you know. Interesting stuff. I'll tell you, I was wondering to myself, why? Why blue? Why blue and why jeans? As I was thinking about fashion more generally, because our boys have a piano recital and also Evelyn too this afternoon. I'm not gonna be able to make it because I'm working but they have their piano recital and my wife, their mother, is insisting that they wear slacks, they wear khakis. Well, Eli, he's not a huge fan of that. He doesn't particularly love wearing khakis. He would rather just wear a comfortable pair of jeans. Why not? It's casual, well, this is casual for me. And of course, Lauren's not having it, as she shouldn't, as is proper for her to not have it. <laughs> and so she, just said, no, I, I, I want you to wear khakis. So you're going to wear khakis. But I found myself thinking just about, okay, well, why? Why are blue jeans so often the go-to? I'm wearing blue jeans right now, for instance. For example, I usually wear blue jeans unless I'm wearing shorts. And it's only on reasonably special occasions or when I'm feeling fancy that I throw on some khakis. Because really, I mean, it, 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 why? Why blue? Why, why is that the canvas? Is there some kind of psychological significance to blue? Well, there is, but it doesn't necessarily mean that that's why we're all wearing blue. Or maybe it is. Who knows? As for the main subject of this episode, which is not blue jeans, by the way, rather Christianity and wokeness, how the social justice movement is hijacking the gospel and the way to stop it, this is not a terribly long read. It's eight hours. If you listen on double speed, which is entirely doable, it'll only take you four hours to get through the audiobook version. I did not love the narrator, you should know. He does mispronounce pretty much every name he says. Uh, I don't know why the guy wouldn't have looked up the proper pronunciation for names like Vodi Bakum. For instance, he kept saying Vadi, Vadi Bakam. It's like, no, it's not. No, stop it. So that was annoying. That, that's just, 
I, I feel like that was sloppy and lazy and they should have fixed that. Uh, but the writing itself, the content itself, narrator aside, was very good. It was very well organized. The foreword is written by John MacArthur. For any of you who are admirers of John MacArthur, really appreciate and trust his giving a seal of approval to things. Uh, you'll be glad to know he gives his seal of approval to Owen Strachan's book here. But it's different. It's a different take on the subject than what, say, for instance, you would get in Vody Bauckham's Fault Lines, which is also an excellent book on the subject. Fault Lines, as I was explaining to my neighbor two houses down as I was recommending the book and explaining you know, why I, I think he'd be interested in it, uh, Fault Lines is so much more autobiographical, talking about how Vody Bauckham as a young black man growing up in America had every reason to buy into the narrative and yet as he became a Christian and then studied God's word and became a pastor and then studied critical race theory and studied this idea of systemic racism being baked into our current legal system, our current governmental system, the justice system, law enforcement, as he started digging into that, he was not persuaded. In fact, he was persuaded that the woke business is antithetical to the Christian conception of many things, including especially justice. Social justice is not biblical justice. They are definitely two separate, distinct, and at-odds things. But Owen Strachan doesn't talk quite as much about his own life, his lived experience, that is something that Vody Bauckham, I think helpfully, it's a good thing that he does, distinguishes. He talks about, for instance, Vody does, this idea of ethnic Gnosticism. It's a term I'd never heard anywhere else, but essentially the idea that the more intersectional you are, the more insight you have, the more special knowledge you have, perhaps even the more godly, spiritual, moral you are, by virtue of how much you've suffered and been excluded and discriminated against, by virtue of all of these boxes that you check, all of these special minority statuses you can claim. The more intersectional you are, the more we should trust your perspective. It's not enough for us to read the scriptures. No, as a white person in America, reading the scriptures, we can't possibly understand what these verses and chapters and books mean. We can't possibly know God as well as a black man or especially a black woman or especially a black woman who is given to some kind of a nonconformist gender identity, sexual inclination. But that's not a new idea. I mean, it might be a new idea that it's being hitched to race, gender, sexuality in our day. But the idea that some people, some Christians have special knowledge beyond just what we would find in the scriptures, that's not a new idea. That's an old idea. And I'm glad Vody Bauckham talks about Gnostics in the first century church or Gnostics that the first century church had to contend with and counter and rebuke and refute as false teachers. Gnosticism is false teaching. It's a false gospel. It is not Christianity. It's not just another denomination 
or another valid alternative to what we think of as orthodox historic Christian testimony in life? No, it's a false gospel. Well, so also here, Owen Strachan makes very clear in the tradition of Chagresha Machen, whose excellent book, Liberalism and Christianity, deals with the reality of liberal theology as clearly as it needs to be dealt with. Owen Strachan here says, in no uncertain terms, woke Christianity believes in and promotes and insists on a false gospel. It is not just one among many valid alternatives. It is a competing religion. You cannot mix Christianity and wokeness. The two are dissimilar and antithetical. And if you try to mix them in together, you will either end up with no Christianity or no wokeness because they will fight one another. They have competing ideas, competing views on justice and man's nature and who God is and how society works, how the family works, how we should think of our relationships and our work, our engagement in civic matters. You know, I'll throw this out there. One of the things that has really struck me most in reading Owen Strachan's take here is the special attention he gives, for instance, to whether or not Christians living in a sinful society, a sinful country or city, are themselves sinful or complicit collectively just by virtue of living in the city or living in the nation. Now, that's a major claim inherent to social justice and wokeness. There's only two options, be a racist or be an anti-racist. There's only two options. You either help us to tear down this system because it's racist, or you are part of the problem. If you even just passively enjoy the benefits of the American system of government, free market capitalism, the prosperity which we associate with this country, the United States of America, if you're just passively enjoying, but you're not actively helping us to tear down this system and push for greater diversity, equity, and inclusivity, a redistribution of power and wealth and status and authority, you are our enemy. And if you claim to be a Christian, while also not helping us in our woke activism, well, then we don't even think you're a Christian. No, you're, you're not even a Christian. If you were a real Christian, you would be helping us to tear down the system. See, that's the, that's the claim of woke Christianity. When David Platt, for instance, gets up at a conference for preaching and teaching and says that he, as a white pastor, is part of the problem in America with regards to systemic racism, just by virtue of his being white, when he gets up and says, as a white pastor, he's part of the problem, just by virtue of being white, he is saying there's a new gospel. When the likes of Tim Keller and Paul David Tripp say they thought they understood the gospel all this time, but they really didn't understand the gospel until they started listening to their black and brown brothers and sisters sharing their lived experience, and that gave them new insight, special insight that was necessary for them truly understanding the gospel, we're talking about a false gospel. 
a different gospel. We're essentially saying that when Jesus told the thief on the cross next to him, today you will be with me in paradise, based solely on the fact that that thief on the cross had affirmed that Jesus was the Son of God, sinless, blameless, that the thief on the cross believed in Jesus, that he was the Messiah. Jesus was wrong because he didn't even get into systemic oppression, systemic racism, dismantling the system. No, that thief on the cross needed to also affirm the tenets of wokeism in order to be a Christian. You know, I hear and I read Tim Keller and Paul David Tripp and David Platt saying, essentially, if you're rejecting CRT, although they don't typically call it that by that name, as, again, Owen Strachan points out, if you reject CRT and systemic racism and you disagree with the claims of activist ethnic minorities pushing for leftism, if you say, no, that's not true, I don't think that's correct, hey, wait a second, let's take a second look here, if you do that, you might not even be a Christian. At a minimum, you're not a very good Christian because we're measuring your spirituality based on how much you're opposing racism, the way that we're saying you have to oppose racism. You know, for that matter, if the claims, and this is, I think, pretty eye-opening for me, like I didn't think of it in these terms, but it's exactly right. If the claims of critical race theory and wokeness are correct, that there are only two options. You are either helping us to dismantle this oppressive system or you're complicit of the sin of racism. If that's true, then Jesus was not sinless. It wasn't enough for him to have refrained from saying anything false, doing anything evil himself. It wasn't enough for him to have done the will of the Father in obedience. No, he also needed to dismantle the system. And because he wasn't doing that, according to wokeness, he was complicit. For him to say, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, render unto God what is God's, the woke crowd would find a way to wiggle out from under, no doubt, and yet to be consistent with the way that they treat white Christians primarily, or even black and brown and red and yellow Christians who don't go in with them, who have a conservative theology because that's biblical theology, they would have to either stop browbeating the rest of us or they would have to condemn Jesus as well and say that he wasn't the perfect atoning sacrifice. And it's not the only way in which the woke crowd undermines the sufficiency of Christ's atoning sacrifice. They also undermine it by saying that if you are a white Christian who repents and turns away from your sins, you believe in the Lord Jesus, that's not enough. It's not enough. By virtue of you being white, you're guilty of the sins of other white people. Not just present, but past. Both real and perceived. The yardstick becomes the lived experience of the woke activists. Or if they can even just tangentially refer to lived experiences of people in their community, that's what you're up against. And you'll never win because your lived experience 
however good or bad it was, is a moot point on the basis of your skin color. You had a really hard life and you're a white person, they're just going to fall back on you showing your white fragility. You had a really good life, you did well, your parents got married and stayed together and raised you in an intact home. Well, that's your privilege. Your white privilege is showing. Your white privilege is showing if you're coming from a good place. Your white fragility is showing if you say, well, actually, I had a really hard life growing up as well, so I don't know what you're talking about. It's not just black people who have a hard time. It's not just red people, brown people, yellow people. It's just people. You know, and, and I think that's another way in which Owen Strachan's book is very refreshing is where he goes through what is and is not woke, right? Yes, once we've identified what wokeness is, let's unpack why this is not biblical, why this is not Christian, why this is not in keeping with the gospel that saves, that restores us to a right relationship with the Father. Absolutely. Once we've determined what wokeness is, let's go down the line and let's do deconstruct this in light of God's word towards the end of loving God well and loving one another well, according to God's word, worshiping God in spirit and in truth. But also let's figure out what is and is not wokeness. What is and is not this whole business of social justice. So for instance, it is not woke to say that systems can be corrupt. You can have two-tiered justice systems which give preferential treatment to some people because they belong to the majority culture and are extra severe towards other people because they are perceived as less than, inherently less than. There was a time in American history when we did have an indisputably two-tiered justice system. And it's not woke to say that happened and that was wrong. That's just the fact. It's just the fact that amendments had to be passed, laws had to be passed. Even once amendments and laws were passed, there still was a need for enforcement because it's not enough to just pass a law. You also have to enforce the law. And even sometimes you can have government officials and elected officials and bureaucrats who are stubborn and they want to do the evil thing and not do the good thing. And they want to not do the good thing and do the evil thing instead. So that's not woke to say that that happened and that it was wrong. Also, it's not woke to say that racism in general is a social evil, that it's wicked, and that it's unbiblical, that it is not in keeping with the truth of Christianity. Racism is a real thing that does exist, and it is proper for us to say that the Christians should have no part of it. Now, whether somebody can harbor some racist attitudes and ideas, I personally think you have to draw the line somewhere on how sensitive you're going to be. And how severe are you going to be if something which turns out to be racist, but is a, a pretty minor thing, as in, we're not talking about lynching somebody, we're not talking about destroying somebody's life, we're not talking about dehumanizing them, we're just talking about, like, hey, maybe you do get uncomfortable if somebody of a different culture walks into the store dressed in a way you're not familiar with, except 
in movies and TV shows where the guys dressed that way might be pulling out a gun next to rob the place. Is that great? Is it great to prejudge somebody just based on the color of their skin and the fact that they're wearing baggy jeans and a backwards hat and they've got tattoos? Black or white, is it great to be prejudging somebody based on their wardrobe? No. Could it be racist? A little bit? Sure. Does it mean that you're not a Christian? No way. No way. Actually, Vody talks about this in Fault Lines as well. And his position as a black man in America, who's able to refer to his lived experience as well, his position is, you will never, this side of the second coming of Christ or his calling us home and making us perfect, you will never be able to get any of us to stop entirely being racists. And it is not a uniquely white problem. That's the, that's the glorious thing about whether you're reading Fault Lines or Christianity and Wokeness is to hear it said plainly, matter-of-factly, self-evidently, this is not a uniquely white problem. This is a people problem. This is a human being problem. This is men, women, and children born in Adam with a sinful nature problem. But I think there, there is something actually challenging to me personally, not being tempted by wokeness and social justice per se, but there is something actually very, I think, encouraging and enlightening. And uh, there's, there's a kind of relieving of a burden I feel as I'm considering the ramifications for me personally of what Owen Strachan says here. Specifically, Jesus was not sinful. He, you know, in other words, if collective guilt were as a rule, the biblical way to approach problems in society where you say that every single member of society who's not actively trying to tear the system down, they're just trying to mind their own business, mind their own business and work with their hands, living a quiet life, aspiring to live a quiet life, as the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica. Everyone who does that, and they keep themselves unstained from the world, they love their wives as Christ loved the church, they don't exasperate their children. They train up their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Everybody who does that is not just by virtue of the fact that they live in a certain society, come from a certain society or a culture, have a certain color of skin. They are not complicit in the sins of a society. It requires more than just being an American, for instance, to determine whether I'm guilty personally whether I deserve a share of the collective guilt. If a girl across town goes to the Planned Parenthood facility just a few miles from our house and gets an abortion, it's kind of a big deal. It's kind of a big deal. Do I personally need to be grieved in the same way that I would be if I were the one getting an abortion? Just because some gal, some young lady in this town might go and get an abortion? That's an important question to ask. It actually might even be the central question to ask when it comes to a few different issues we need to contend with in the church and with regards to our Christian life and testimony. I mean, take for instance, I've got a neighbor across the street who we don't get on. (laughs) We'll just put it that way. His son is not my son. I'm responsible to raise my sons 
in the fear and admonition of the Lord. I am not responsible to go across the street and raise his son in the fear and admonition of the Lord. If his son is being mean and cruel to a younger brother, believe you me, there is a point at which I will intervene and say, stop it. That's enough. Your brother doesn't like that. You need to knock it off. But generally speaking, that is not my responsibility. That is not on my account like it would be if my son is tormenting the neighbor kid across the street or if my son is tormenting his little brother in my house, both of them being my sons. And it might seem silly that that is kind of a eye-opening realization for me. But I, it just, it, it really does go to show it, something I've been asking, debating with regards to Paul David Tripp's book, for instance. You know, Paul David Tripp really does, I think, a number of things which I am concerned about in his book, Lead. And I've recorded a couple episodes about Paul David Tripp, and I've also recorded an episode about Dr. Eric Mason, who is Paul David Tripp's pastor. And I don't mean to beat a dead horse or repeat myself over and over and obsess over things that I'm just going to have to agree to disagree with some people over. But one of the big concerns that I have with regards to Paul David Tripp is that it feels as though he is not just putting a permission slip into the hands of leaders, generally speaking, men and women, to hold one another accountable, to encourage one another, to challenge one another. It feels as though at several points he is putting a mandate on their account to weed out actively leaders who tick certain boxes. For instance, being sexist, broadly speaking, generally speaking, who marginalize the gifts, the God-given gifts, you got to throw in that phrase, God-given, the God-given gifts of women in the church. Well, that's a very broadly framed category. You really should narrow that down. You really should get more specific about what you mean about God-given gifts. Someone who believes in the ordination of women could take that and run with it, for instance. They could say, well, we're going to ask this gal to teach. No, 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 we're not making her a pastor. We're just asking her to teach the men and the women. And so let's say you're a leader in the church and you say, whoa, 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 wait a second. The Apostle Paul writes, I don't permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man in the church, as in all the churches. She used to remain silent. And I believe personally that that's specifically relative official offices, official positions of authority, official teaching and leadership positions like overseer and deacon. By the way, as an aside, I am not sold on the idea that having a vague general notion that we're just going to call everybody a leader is so good and biblical and healthy. Actually, I, it feels a bit like a Trojan horse. That's how I would describe it. But let's just take my concerns, for example, with Paul David Tripp's book, and let's take the claims that Paul David Tripp is making in his book about the responsibility that leaders have, a leadership community, as he calls it, has to more or less police its own. 
which I believe in after a fashion. It's totally biblical after a fashion, but you got to look at the details. You got to look at the specifics. You have to define the terms. You know, take, for example, my saying, hey, Paul David Tripp has said all of these things outside of this book right around the time that he published this book about how he's all in for systemic racism being an imperative focus of the American church. And if it isn't, where it isn't, we might not even be Christians. We might not even understand the gospel. So I look at that and I say, okay, I thought I smelled an overripe fish. (laughs) Something's rotten in the state of Denmark. I thought I smelled something as I was reading it. And then I go and investigate and research. And sure enough, yep, because these attitudes towards a redistribution of authority between a leadership community away from necessarily overseers and deacons, which are the only two I can think of official offices in the early church. You could maybe expand that if you want to go a little further into early church history, expand that to bishops who are just overseers of overseers. just have multiple layers of overseers who report to other overseers. But I'm not sold on that. Also, I think it's dangerous, the example that he's setting, the things that he is endorsing, affirming, insisting upon, claiming our imperative if we are actually Christians. But I give the warning. I make it clear. I make no mistake what I believe the concerns are at length. I communicate those to leaders leadership and my family. And if somebody comes asking me, I'll tell them. And of course, I'm publishing a podcast about it. Is it on my account at that point? Is it on me now? No, no, I did my part. I did what I believed I must. I said what I believed I must. My conscience compelled me to, and I could not be silent with a good conscience, with a clean conscience. So now, If some crazy woke business does end up creeping in to our ideas of leadership, if all of a sudden we do associate actual authority being possessed by biblical offices, office holders in the church, and us needing to redistribute that wealth, us associating authority and power, disproportionate power, which always must be the case when there is an authority figure with oppression, with prejudice, discrimination of an unbiblical, ungodly kind. If we do that, and by we I mean y'all, I've made it clear I want no part of it. I issued the warning. I said my piece. Hopefully, by God's grace, I testified to the truth. And now my conscience is clear, and it can be, and it should be. You know, for that matter... A lot of the sins, so-called, which are pointed out by CRT and social justice, which I know is a relevant problem, if for no other reason than that several of the key proponents in the American church of CRT, whatever they want to call it, it is a rose by any other name, are resources among the people that I know and fellowship with. You go to the Gospel Coalition to find resources for a small group study, youth group, 
Well, you're going to an organization which has helped to promote CRT and wokeness. Attend Secret Church by David Platt with David Platt. He has not, to my knowledge, repented of having said that he's a part of the problem for no other reason than the fact that he's a white pastor in America. To my knowledge, he has not repented of that. I think I would have heard about it if he had, and yet we're going to him for counsel on other issues. Paul David Tripp, woke as woke can be when he sits on the staircase of his apartment, his uh, suite, and he tells us it's imperative. We campaign against racism as defined by CRT. Calls Eric Mason, his pastor, tells us all, hey, if you really want to understand this stuff, you need to read The Color of Compromise by Jamar Tisby. You need to read Woke Church by Dr. Eric Mason, which I intend to this afternoon, and then I'll do a review on that one as well. But Owen Strachan, I appreciate that he does something that Vody Bauckham, to my memory, did not do in Fault Lines. And Fault Lines dealt more with this idea of ethnic Gnosticism, lived experience, a special monopoly on spirituality and maturity and godliness, which the woke brand of Christianity claims the most intersectional Christians have claimed to. But I don't remember Vody saying specifically, practically, what should you do with the people who are promoting wokeness? Owen Strachan does. Now he says a couple of things that I think are good and valid, indisputably, and one that I'm not 100% sure on, and I'll, I'll get to that one, and I'll explain why. But plain and simple, there are a couple of different categories when it comes to the whole woke business. For one, you have the folks who are all in for woke. Go woke or go broke. If you're not a woke Christian, you might not even be a Christian. There's also the category of decidedly anti-woke. We are opposed. We know what social justice is. We know what the claims of wokeness are. And we believe that they are not just a little bit off. We believe that they are diametrically opposed to the truth of Scripture, the truth of God's Word, the truth about God, the truth about the gospel, the truth about us in several key, critical, important ways. So not just no, hell no. But then in between those two, you have a whole lot of folk who decreasingly, as the past few years have unfolded, but nevertheless are still unsure what to make of it all. They are undecided. Is it really that big of a deal? That's part of why they don't know more about it. They don't understand it any better than they do. So they're not sure that it's really that big of a deal. Is it that big of a deal? Oh, come on. I don't, I don't know. Probably just a passing fad. Really? How about if Mormonism in your church suddenly becomes a passing fad? Are you going to take that? Seriously? How about if saying Christians and Muslims worship the same God becomes a trend in your church? Is that a big deal? How about if Gnosticism is actually making a resurgence, but it's calling itself wokeness? What if liberal theology is just here in its latest form, and this is it, and this is a perfect example of what we were warned against when we read in the scriptures, let no one take you captive by vain human philosophy. I appreciate that Owen Strachan brings that one up quite often, actually, also. 
you buy into social justice, you buy into woke Christianity, you have allowed yourself to be taken captive by vain human philosophy. It's not biblical, it's philosophical, it's ideological, it's political. And the politics just so happen to be Marxist, communist. But here we have a specific recommendation if you belong to either the pro-woke, actively all in for woke, if you belong to or attend a church that is all in on the woke business, Strakhan here says you should go talk with the pastors privately. Don't post to social media and say all kinds of passive-aggressive, divisive, inflammatory things. Just quietly ask if you can meet with the elders of the church and explain your concerns. And if they'll listen to you, great. Because maybe they don't, they, they think they're all in, but they don't really realize what they're getting into. They don't know themselves that they've been taken captive by vain human philosophy. If they won't listen to you though, you need to find a new church. It is that important. It is that big of a deal. And John MacArthur said so. So <clears throat> you gots to. <laughs> now, if you're part of a church that is undecided and the pastors, the elders, deacons, leadership, community, as it is known in some places, is not quite sure what to make of the woke business, but they're flirting with it. Uh, they're not repudiating it or they're kind of letting it come in a little bit here and there in some forms. And maybe it's a weakened strain, but you know, it, it could go that way. Well, so also, you know, don't, you don't need to post to social media, Strakhan says. Don't be divisive. Don't be ugly. Don't be disrespectful. Don't be rude. But do ask to meet privately with the elders and explain your concerns. And if they listen to you, great. You've won your brother. Odds are high. If they're undecided, they just don't really understand what they're dealing with very well. They just don't understand it very well. If they won't listen to you, though, if they go all in, you need to find yourself a new church. You need to go somewhere else. And when you say that, you'll be accused of being divisive. But the key important critical thing is not to be united on just any old terms. We could all be Unitarians, but then we wouldn't be Christians. It's an either or. It is an exclusive claim that God has on the gospel. Which gospel saves and which doesn't. Or which don't, because there's lots of false gospels. Now, I'll pick up on, you know, one of these things in Strakhan's book about, you know, don't be posting to social media a whole bunch of obnoxious, divisive, passive-aggressive things. A couple thoughts on that. I, I have some pause there on that piece of advice. Not to say that I think we should be posting passive-aggressive, obnoxious, divisive things on Facebook or Twitter or wherever. But again, as with the whole rest of this topic, this subject, and so many others, it's so important that we define our terms and we know what we mean and what the other person means and what all they would put in the category that they're describing for us as they give the advice. Several years ago, I was a deacon at a church in Savage, Montana that we attended for, oh, I don't know, three or four years, something like that. And I sat on the governing board. And initially, when I was asked to serve on the governing board, 
I was asked to serve as an elder. And I said I would pray about it. But if that was how I was asked to serve, and if I was put in that position, I would serve to the best of my ability, so help me God. However best I could serve, I'd be happy to serve. And I ended up finding out over the course of the next two years, after not having been voted in as an elder, in fact, having been whittled down to being a deacon, and then even that being dragged out in this this very weird, awkward general meeting, business meeting, annual for the church, I ended up finding out that the principal objection that one family, several members of one particular pillar family in the church had to my being an elder had to do with our stance on public education. More specifically, my stance, but our stance. Here we are homeschooling our kids, not involved in any way, shape, or form with Savage Public Schools. And then not only are we not involved, here I'm writing articles and and blog posts, extended, like at length, investigative, historical, philosophical, deep dives into why we homeschool. And this one family was very, very concerned that that might undermine the Awana ministry that might offend the community that sends their children to savage public schools. The comment that was made was, as I was told by a member of this family, when I finally did get something approaching a straight answer, the comment was made regarding my being nominated to be an elder at the church. I would just really rather our governing board be involved in our local school. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that be better? It was suggested at a certain point a few years in when my family was increasingly being ostracized by the members of this one family, extended family. It was suggested that maybe I should apologize for having made some posts to Facebook concerning public education. And for the most part, when I would post something concerning public education back then, it was a story, it was a real actual news story from somewhere in the country about some scandal, some teacher who had just been fired and was on trial for having had sex with several students, or it was some student who had gone in and shot up the place, or it was some article about the rise in teenage suicides, the rise in substance abuse, declining academic performance, et cetera, et cetera. And all I would do, in addition to posting the link, would say, I, I, I would say, and this is why we homeschool. To one particular family in the church, that was considered obnoxious and rude and divisive and passive-aggressive. And I didn't mean it in any of those ways. I meant it as a call for reform. And certainly other people, lots of other people, were posting news articles, stories, commentary. I was a blogger. I had been a blogger for a few years at that point. I got into podcasting right around that time as well. And so I'm doing commentary. It's not just like, you know, kind of an on the side, just some random guy. It's like, no, I'm like, this is what I want to do. I want to write books and blog and podcast and be an engaged, informed citizen, helping other citizens, especially Christians, to be informed and engaged. I also want to be intentional with my Christian life and testimony and in the way that I 
raise my family and the way that I vote, the way I encourage other people to vote, the way that I encourage other Christians to steward their families and their homes. How else am I going to do that if you guys successfully muzzle me on the grounds that I'm being divisive, obnoxious, rude, passive aggressive? You know, they took it intensely personally that I was saying these critical things about public education because the public school in Savage, Montana was the center of the community. It was the center of the community. You know, in Eastern Montana, you have to understand, I'm from Eastern Montana, Glendive specifically. We moved away when I was 10, moved to Southern Ohio. I moved back when I was 25, and then we moved down here in 2019. I was... 30, 32? Yeah, 32. Eastern Montanan, small town, small community, uh, society, culture, is centered on just a couple of places. The church, for one, the bar, for another, and the local public school. Uh, those really are your, your primary centers that draw in all the farmers and the ranchers and the rural hardworking, salt-of-the-earth type people who might live out in the sticks, well, they come to town when there's a basketball game. They will drive across the state to see their grandchild or their niece or their nephew compete in a track meet. They will, you know, they, they gather together on the basis of those things. So then even if I'm talking about the American public school writ large, they're not thinking American public school writ large. They're thinking, well, our small town school, every teacher I know, and I know their parents and their grandparents, and we've known each other for a hundred years, and these are decent people, and it's not like that, and you're, what are you implying about this trusted institution that we love, and that is so near and dear to our hearts, it's so central to our way of life, you know, so, so all I'm saying here with regards to Owen Strachan's advice with regards to social justice is, there has to be a social media campaign involved. There just does. You know, especially for somebody who is podcasting and blogging. You know, how do you not go there? How do you not talk about it? You know, if you if you say that only the one side, only the social justice crowd, only the critical race theory crowd, those proponents are able to argue their case on social media, but the folks who are opposed have to keep silent you essentially have just given them the game. You've thrown the game in favor of the social justice, critical race theory, leftist, liberal theology contingent in the church. You know, one of the, one of the most heartbreaking things for me with this whole church situation that we had in Savage was that, you know, I went to leadership and leadership said, yes, it's a real problem, right? Like how your family's being related to, how you're being related to by your fellow Christians on the basis of some distinction that like I, I literally was discouraged from even going and talking with them directly. I knew that they were offended about something. I didn't know what, just all of a sudden things turned for the worse, but no, 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 don't, don't go talk with them. I want to deal with it from the pulpit is what I heard. I want to deal with this from the pulpit. Um, what? What about Matthew 18? Where, where does that come into play? So what happens is, <laughs> you know, it, all of a sudden I have this position, 
but I'm also extremely troubled, and it's obvious to everybody. So I'm put up for everyone to see, but I'm, I'm very, very upset and heartbroken because the whole time that I'm serving, these little passive-aggressive pot shots are being taken at me and my family, and anytime I want to defend myself or respond or confront these other professing Christians for the way that they're relating in an ungodly way, the way they're sinning against us, Anytime I want to do that, I'm given, I, I'm given passive-aggressive lectures about the need to not be oversensitive, the need to not be easily offended. Hey, let's all go through this book, The Bait of Satan, about how Satan is just trying to tempt you to be offended by things that are really not important and don't matter. You see? So if we, if we define <clears throat> things like gossip, too broadly or too nebulously, what can happen very often, and I've seen this up close several times, what can happen very often is that all of the ability to provide accountability or conflict resolution or to actually deal with or sweep things under the rug or to mismanage or neglect or ignore real problems, all of that is reserved entirely for pastors. So I'll give you an example. Jordan Hall, aka J.D. Hall, aka Gideon Knox, pastor of Fellowship Baptist Church in Sydney, Montana, just absolutely tore to pieces a lot of people, a lot of good, decent people that I knew who not just served in his church there, they served in leadership at his church there. He absolutely tore them to pieces and then told the whole church that when they left, <laughs> nobody was allowed to talk to them anymore because they were under church discipline. So what happened was they had gone to him and said, hey, your tone, your treatment of people and issues is excessively severe and harsh and not kind. It's not respectful. It's not gentle. And you need to moderate that. And his response was essentially to run them out of the church. Then to tell the whole church, you can't have anything to do with them. Then, when they would try and tell their side of the story, even privately, even quietly, in part to me because I was also somebody who had gone there, we had gone there, our family had gone there, we knew them, we knew him, I had made no mistake, no mystery as to my objections to his way of relating because his way of relating was sinful, wicked, warped, twisted, ungodly, not in keeping for a minister of the gospel at all not above reproach at all, as far from it as could be imagined, in fact, if they wanted to present their side of it, all of a sudden, he was quick to play the gossip card. Oh, you're gossiping. You should repent. Wait a second. Okay, so if you talk about your conflict with them as publicly as can be on your podcast, on your blog, to the whole church, and you tell everybody to mark this family and avoid them from here on out because they're sinning and they're the one they're the ones who sinned and were refusing to be corrected and to be accountable and to come under godly authority that's not gossip if they speak a word in their own defense to say actually what happened was this to try and clear their name clear their reputation well that's 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 also sin right no no what actually is going on here is that you're thoroughly abusive 
and unbiblical. And this is just an additional way. How, how you're defining gossip here is just an additional way that you are stubbornly committed to your wicked ways of relating. Now, with regards to the whole woke business, let's suppose, for the sake of argument, you do have somebody who is promoting a mixture of wokeness and Christianity. And so you make that known. You say, hey, I'm concerned. I'm concerned that this is an issue. You say it privately, and then you leave. Are you not allowed to talk about it anymore? You know, I'm just saying, I do not think this should be solely the domain of pastors. I don't think that's biblical. I don't think that conflict resolution in the church should be solely the domain of pastors. I don't read in Matthew 18 anything which would lead me to believe that conflict resolution, confronting untruth, sin, is only the domain of pastors. You know, Owen Strachan, he's written this book. Some would say it's divisive. I don't see how if somebody were to take and lift some quotes and some lines from his book and turn them into memes, which I'm sure people have done, but just giving an example here, somebody were to do that and then post those memes to Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, I can't imagine any valid case for how that would suddenly become inappropriate, but his having written the whole book altogether is appropriate. You know, for that matter, and I'm this will be our closing segment here because I'm over time. I was having a conversation recently with a friend and relative of mine about reformed circles and the tendency in reformed circles to insert into every sermon some question as to whether everyone present who believes that they're a Christian is actually a Christian. There's always got to be, for whatever reason, some undermining of our confidence. If we don't leave every church service questioning whether we are in fact Christians, then it's as though the pastor and preacher feels they have failed. Now, on the flip side, all too often in Reformed circles, the mark of a good sermon, according to the elect, is that it is so good and super convicting. The mark of a good book, actually, for that matter, is that it was so good and super convicting. Does everything need to be convicting, or is it okay sometimes for a message to be encouraging, actually? Does everything need to convict you of your sin, or sometimes is it possible that the one with the message is overreaching a little bit and trying to go for that feeling much the same way, although it's a different feeling, but much the same way that Pentecostals and Charismatics are chasing a feeling. You know, Pentecostals and Charismatics get a lot of flack from the Johnny Mac, I don't know what to call it, fan club. (laughs) Forgive me if that's flippant, but the Pentecostals and Charismatics get a lot of flack, and rightly so, for chasing that emotional high that they associate with the presence of God. There should be a closer examination of claims made that you feel the presence of the Lord when the fog machine really gets going and the guy running the lights is on his game 
and the band is just killing it this morning. Like we should definitely be questioning whether your goosebumps and your emotional high is proof that you were in the presence of the Lord this morning. Yes, by all means, question away. Test the spirits. Search the scriptures daily to see whether these things are so, like the Bereans did. Absolutely, 100%. Also, (laughs) now do the Reformed crowd. (laughs) There's something perverse and warped if we think it was not a good sermon, it was not a good church service, it wasn't a worthwhile small group struggle session if we didn't come away questioning our salvation. It is not for no reason that we are written the encouragements in the New Testament epistles that we are. In fact, what we're told is we should have full assurance of our salvation if we are, in fact, in Christ. But you don't tell people who are feeling beat down, discouraged, forlorn, who are really struggling. You don't tell them, I'm not even sure you're a Christian because you're hurting right now, because you're sad, because you're upset, because you're worried, because you're concerned. You don't do that in light of the New Testament epistles. There is a kind of equal opportunity offender uh, calling, I feel, as I read Owen Strachan's book here. And he's talking about some of the things that he's talking about with regards to wokeness. I mean, truth be told, to be consistent, it needs to be just as dangerous and toxic and bad and unbiblical when the woke crowd is constantly questioning the salvation of everybody who disagrees with them on systemic racism and CRT and social justice and leftism, and when the Pentecostal crowd is questioning whether you're even saved if you don't speak in tongues, or when the Reformed crowd questions your salvation if you disagree on some relatively minor point of Reformed doctrine. We should... Be very, very careful about our doctrine. To teach only what accords with sound doctrine. Absolutely. But we should also be very, very careful to not imply that every little difference means that the other person is probably probably not even a Christian. You know, I have some family. I won't say who, because that would be crossing the line. But I have some family who, within the family, are known for far too easily reaching for a question of whether someone is even saved. Way too, way too easily. I mean, it's like an itchy trigger finger. Oh, you disagree with me about this? Are you even saved? What? Stop. Stop it. Knock it off. You know, it's like, (laughs) here's what I would compare it to. It's like if two of my boys were arguing about doing their chores after dinner and it was getting a little out of hand and there was a disagreement about who needs to put away the food this time and also wash the dishes and make the coffee maker ready for tomorrow morning. And and then all of a sudden one of them blurts out, sometimes I wonder if you were adopted. Are you really part of this family? You know, but they, but they meant it, like not as a joke, but like for reals and serious. You know, if they kept saying that, if they kept implying it over and over again every time there was a conflict and a disagreement with them, at a certain point you would say, "Mm, that's low, that's mean, stop it. So also, 
something I've told a pastor friend of mine as we've talked about this whole social justice woke business the past year or two. And he's not so sure. He's just he's just not so sure that we should become the cancel culture folks in the church with regards to some of these woke and supposedly woke. He's he's not even <laughs> it's so funny. He's not even so sure that he wants to commit to calling some of these guys that have gone in for CRT and systemic racism woke. Like he's uncomfortable with even calling them woke because I think he sees that as a slippery slope to like once we once we put them in the category of woke, you know, then we'll have to figure out what to do with them. And he doesn't want to figure out what to do with them, so he doesn't want to put them in the category of woke. <laughs> so he, he'll say they're so-called woke, right? Like so-called or supposedly. But he's, he's always like watering it down. I'll I'll call them woke because it's like well, no, like definitionally they are, and that's another thing that Owen Strachan helpfully points out at the beginning of his book is most of the most popular books with regards to CRT and wokeism don't actually use the specific terms throughout, which is which is another observation I had with regards to Lead by Paul David Tripp. It's the substance of the ideas. It's, it doesn't have to use the term toxic masculinity to be talking about toxic masculinity. This doesn't have to be affirming the ordination of women explicitly to be opening up the case for the ordination of women. But as I've told my pastor friend, I say, you know, with regards to the woke church, woke Christianity crowd, a test for how seriously we should be seeing this difference, this disagreement about social justice, about collective guilt, about inherited guilt for the sin of slavery, for instance, for example, which is entirely unbiblical. That's an entirely wicked position to take. Didn't you read the parts in the Old Testament law where God explicitly says that the sins of the fathers will not be visited on the children. You're not supposed to punish children for the sins of their parents. Punish parents for the sins of their children. Did you read that part? Because I feel like you're saying the exact opposite. But if the woke crowd is saying, you're not actually a Christian unless you agree with us on wokeness, they've already, they've already taken it there. It's not you. It's not you who is being divisive. It's them. And you're not doing anyone any favors, actually, to be intentionally undecided, on purpose undecided about it. Not really, truly. Or if you are, I just don't see how. In conclusion, definitely check out Christianity and Wokeness, how the social justice movement is hijacking the gospel and the way to stop it. It's very good, very thorough, even-handed, well-written, well-articulated, some really good observations, some really good questions that need to be grappled with here that even if you've read a few other books on social justice, it does not hurt to read yet another, especially if it's this one. I got to run though. That's all the time I've got for this episode. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.